Uh, everybody. Hi, Wan Shang Hao, good evening. I wanted to say, Wan uh, Ying, uh, welcome to the University of Sydney. And I wanted also to say, Wo Jiao Yu Han Yip. I am from Keen. I'm Professor of Politics uh, here at the University of Sydney. Uh, I uh, had a hand in founding and uh, directing now the Sydney Democracy Network. I wanted to uh, remind uh, all of you and to pay respects uh, to the fact that this is the country of the Gadigal people uh, who have lived on these lands and continue to do so for 40,000 years and whose land this shall forever remain. I wanted to say um, a very warm shishi uh, ni to Lee Odzinga. I'm not sure if she is still here somewhere in the audience. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Lee, for all that you did to make this rather complicated and pretty exciting uh, meeting possible. Shanlu uh, Lu is not here, um, is on maternity leave. Thank you, Lulu. Uh, and to Meredith Hall, uh, who is um, who is Sydney Ideas and, and runs Sydney Ideas, and we are, thank you, Meredith, we are in the 10th anniversary year of Sydney Ideas, which is, as I'm sure many of you know, one of the great uh, fixtures at the University of Sydney, and without it, uh, this uh, institution would be in a much poorer place. May I remind you that tonight is the beginning of um, more or less a week of um, important events on China, Next week, um, the university welcomes uh, Professor Yu Keping, who uh, recently was ranked as um, the very number one uh, intellectual in the social sciences in China, who next Monday, uh, in this very place at six o'clock, is going to give a public lecture. It's pretty full, but there are places, and I urge you uh, to come. Uh, his topic is he's going to revisit uh, Chinese conceptions of power and authority and ask what can be learned about past traditions of thinking about power and authority uh, for the present. That's uh, Yu Keping at uh, six o'clock in this room next Monday, the 11th. And on Thursday, the 14th of April, uh, Yu Keping in the Law Lounge, which you will find uh, in this uh, building at five o'clock, is going to talk about um, present reforms uh, in China, uh, looking at the, taking the longer view uh, since the beginning of the Deng Xiaoping reforms and look into the future uh, in matters of uh, government and market and corruption and uh, the future of uh, civil society. That's next Thursday at, uh, at five o'clock. Tonight, um, we have a very special event on the topic it's a topical topic in this country of um, rather grandly called China's grand strategy. Regional roles, policies towards middle powers such as Australia in the context of US-China uh, uh, relations. It's become a commonplace to say that China is rising. Um, I know many scholars and journalists and others who object to that wording. Um, David Schumbauer is among them who says that we should speak about the spreading of China. One thing is clear that the isolationism of the Mao period is well over, that um, Chinese institutions and mechanisms and bargaining processes are spreading uh, into uh, all four corners of the earth. And this has raised important questions about um, Australia's role in the region 
and China's relationship to our Asia-Pacific region. I was at, um, just two weeks ago, uh, Malcolm Turnbull's, Prime Minister Turnbull's first major foreign policy speech, where the government position is that um, Australia now has to, and Australian citizens have to recognize that our region, the Asia-Pacific region, is our destiny. Um, he called for a much tighter relationship with Indonesia and with India, uh, Japan. He also said in the same speech that continuing uh, good working close relations with China uh, remained central to Australian foreign policy. And by the by, mentioned that the United States is of course our great ally in the region. And I think I was not the only one who felt that there was a dodging of um, some complications in, in that uh, uh, lecture. So tonight we um, are going to uh, talk about this topic of the spread of uh, uh, the spreading power of China in the world, uh, relations with the United States and China, um, what is the relationship of Australia, might it be as a little middle power in the region, we will, um, I hope, talk about some of the concrete features of Chinese um, foreign diplomatic and commercial policy, including um, initiatives such as the Silk Road, the Silk Road Economic Belt, and the 21st Century Maritime Silk Road initiatives, which are now widely thought to be the most important move that President uh, Xi Jinping has made, something of signature policies. Tonight, we are very lucky and uh, privileged to have uh, three uh, of the most prominent uh, scholars from China to uh, help us navigate through these issues. I wanted, uh, and in order of speaking, I wanted to welcome and say just a few words about um, our three speakers, the first of whom will be uh, Professor <coughs> Wang Jisu. He's president of the Institute of International and Strategic Studies at uh, Peking University. He's honorary president of the Chinese Association for um, American uh, Studies. He's been a member of the Foreign Policy Advisory Committee of China's Foreign Ministry since 2008. A very warm Huan Yi to you. Um, follow, following uh, Wang Jisu will be Professor uh, Yan Shui-Tong, who is the Dean of the Institute of Modern International Relations at uh, Tsinghua University. He's Secretary General of the World Peace Forum, the Editor-in-Chief of the Chinese Journal of International Politics, and a member of the Consultation Committee of the Ministry of Commerce of the People's Republic of China. And third uh, speaker, um, each is, has agreed faithfully to, to stick to 10 minutes uh, so that we can have lots of Q&A is Professor uh, Jia Qingguo. Uh, he's the Dean of the School of International Studies at Peking University. His publications focus on uh, US-China uh, relations um, uh, and on Taiwan and in general uh, Chinese uh, foreign policy. And if I'm not mistaken, um, there's a special warm welcome back to Sydney because once upon a time you uh, were uh, a member of staff here at the University of Sydney in the Department of Government. Then we have three of our very best uh, commentators at the university. Uh, in order, um, uh, we will have a few minutes uh, commentary from Professor Colin White. He is um, one of 
the leaders in his field uh, globally. Uh, he is professor of uh, international uh, relations here at the university. He has published a number of books, um, including one that Cambridge published called Agent Structures and International Relations, and most recently, just out, please buy it, is a book called Rethinking Terrorism, Terrorism, Violence, and the State. Um, his interests run wide, uh, he is wise, uh, he's a tough debater, and uh, he knows his international relations. And so thank you very much, Colin, for joining us. Justin Hastings. Dr. Justin Hastings is a senior lecturer in the Department of um, uh, uh, Government and International Relations here at Sydney. He works with the Sydney Southeast Asia Center, the China Studies Center, and the Center of International Security Studies. This is doctorate from, from Berkeley. Um, he's interested in all the really uh, cool topics in international relations today, gray, black markets, rogue states. There's a lot of them about. Uh, structure and behavior of non-state, clandestine non-state actors, terrorist, maritime um, piracy, and so on. His interests uh, run wide in the region, Northeast uh, Asia, Southeast Asia, the Indian Ocean, and a book is coming up called A Most Enterprising Country, North Korea in the Global uh, Economy. And then, thirdly, uh, Tom Wilkins, Dr. Thomas Wilkins, who is uh, a specialist in security strategic studies, especially on the Asia-Pacific uh, region. He joined us from the University of uh, Salford in the UK. Um, he spent time as a guest um, uh, of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Taiwan on a fellowship and has spent time more recently at uh, Tokyo University. And he has also taught at Hong Kong uh, Un University. I hope you can remember all of that uh, and um, uh, we are now going to uh, uh, go through the speakers. I want uh, very warmly to welcome uh, Professor uh, Wang Tisi to speak to us um, about these topics that are of very great importance. The speakers will stay at the table. May I just remind you to speak into the microphone because we are recording. Thank you all very much uh, for attending this uh, forum, and I'm extremely privileged and honored to speak to uh, the University of uh, Sydney. And uh, I was just told a few moments ago that the topic is uh, China's grand strategy, but my previous understanding was uh, the topic was the um, China and international order. So uh, I will say a few words about China's and international order. I think that it is, pertinent, per, it is uh, relevant to the topic, uh, although I could also speak on China's grand strategy, if there is any. Uh, maybe Yan Xiaotong has, uh, has his own version. But uh, I, I will first of, talk, first of all talk about China and international order. Uh, and when we speak of China, I think there are different past, different perceptions of China. Of course, China means the People's Republic of China. But when we say Taiwan is part of China, Taiwan is actually not yet part of the People's Republic of China. But that, so that is a, that's a different. Uh, but anyway, when we talk about China, we mainly refer to the People's Republic of China as a sovereign state a political entity. But there are some other 
perceptions of China or images of China, like you know, China's a long civilization, continuous civilization. Uh, when we say, well, the South China Sea has been China's territory uh, since ancient times, that is ancient China or, or historical China or cultural China or civilizational China. Uh, so that there is some subtle difference from 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 what we in the we in China understand as what is is China and other people's understanding of China. But there is also a third image of China, which I will call ethnic China. We see quite a few ethnic Chinese here, but I don't really know whether you are Australian or that you are Singaporean or whatever. But in China, the understanding is that. Are you Chinese? But, uh, so there is the, the ethnic dimension of, of, of China, which is quite peculiar because uh, you, you know, if you're talking about the United States, it, you have multicultural, multi-religious, and, and you don't have an ethnic America. And you don't have very much talk about a, a historical America like with China's history. So this is quite relevant to China's uh, position in the international order because we sometimes we don't uh, we don't have the same definition of what China is. But then the def another definition is what is international order. Uh, I think of international order as uh, uh, as uh, uh, of two components. One is is is, is balance of power or power distribution among major powers in the world. Who are the major powers in the world? Of course, China is one of them. And of course, the United States is another. And then you have European countries, uh, the European Union, you have India, you have Japan, you have uh, uh, Russia. And uh, we don't think very much uh, that uh, Australia is a major power. Uh, but speaking here, I should say Australia is playing a very important role in the Asia-Pacific region. <laughs> so in the mindset of China, these are the major powers. The United States, uh, sometimes people don't see Japan as a major power, and that is quite controversial. But most people in China say, of course, Russia is a great power. Where is Europe? So there are discussions about whether China is number two. Um, I don't like the idea that China is number two because uh, as a scholar, I would say if there is number one, number two, where is number three? Who is number three? Uh, when China was not number two, nobody said that there was a number two because very few people will say Japan was number two when, when Japan was the second largest economy in the world. So that is quite interesting to think about the, the new distribution of power. But that distribution also has something to do with major power relationships. Certainly the United States and China are not allies. But China, the United States and Japan, US and, and, and the major European countries and Australia, they are strategic allies. They are, uh, they are security allies. And they have similar political systems. And you know, they share some kind of common values. But China is quite different from that, uh, that group. If China grows stronger and stronger, 
China will be, become a developed country, a modernized country, but China will still not, to, not be one of them, or in, in, in your definition, one of us. Why? Because of a number of reasons. China's politics will, will be, be different. China's culture is always different. And uh, racially, China, and ethnically, China is still China. Uh, so that is also uh, one thing we'll have to keep in mind, that China will have some hesitation in joining the existing international order led by the Western countries, because there is not a very strong counterweight to this Western order. So this is power distribution. Another part of international order is the rules of the game. How, how countries are, uh, uh, how international relations are regulated. Of course, the most important rule is the United Nations Charter, uh, sovereign states with national sovereignty, territorial integrity, and international uh, equality. We all, in China, when we talk about international rules, the first thing we emphasize is sovereignty. But there are also some other rules that are not very much related to the single notion of sovereignty. For instance, international economic rules, you have, uh, you have IMF, World Bank, and, and so on, where you have to abide by their rules and regulations, and China has no problem, has little problem joining that international order. That in, uh, China abides by all the international rules there, but with some reservation, for instance, many Chinese are not satisfied with the dollar dominating, dollar dominated international uh, financial uh, order. China wants to internationalize its uh, currency, but that will be uh, very long. Uh, it will be a, a, a very long time future when China's renminbi will become as strong as the American U.S. dollar. But essentially, China has little problem joining the international economic order. How about security? That is quite complicated. China abides by uh, most uh, rules of the game, like non-proliferation, arms control, peaceful settlement of territorial disputes, all those rules. But China has more reservations about certain uh, things in international security. For instance, US-led security system in the Asia-Pacific region. China doesn't say very much about US military presence in Saudi Arabia or, 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 or Turkey, but China is more concerned about US military presence near China, uh, especially in East Asia, in Japan. To some extent, a US uh, Australian alliance is, a, is also a, a question we all uh, we ask whether it is, is, is positive to China or it is not very good to China. Most important, I think, China has reservations about current international political order uh, because China has a different political system. Uh, China has more reservations about what some people would call universal values. Uh, and and there is that that is where China and the United States have most uh, debate about 
that is we divide world within China divide world into developing world and developed world and China says we side with the develop developing world uh, but also we, we want to maintain good relations with the developed world Eastern Western world but that is not very often mentioned in the United States developing developed they always refer to democratic countries and non-democratic countries so that if we put Australia in that, uh, in, 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 in that picture, in that balance, then Australia is certainly siding with the United States. Of course, China has a strong and very, very solid economic relationship with Australia. So by and large, China uh, says, the Chinese leaders often insist that China welcomes the international order and China is a facilitator, a contributor to the international order. But to some extent, I would say China is also a reformer of the existing international order. Given China's size, given China's rise, given China's aspiration in world affairs, China's rise will, will serve the, you know, objectively, the rise of China will certainly bring some changes to the existing international order. But uh, I hope China and, and other countries will work together to build a stronger international order because when we talk about order, and I, when I was in the state talking about orders, different orders, one very distinguished scholar told me, well, we are talking about orders, but all of us are in favor of, in favor of order. <coughs> But some people in the in, 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 in world are not in favor of order. They are in favor of disorder or chaotic situation. We have examples in the Middle East, in some countries, even in Australia and in China, that, that, that these people do not uh, work for a good order. I'm not saying that they are essentially bad people, but we have to keep in mind that all countries should work together to provide a stronger international order. Thank you. Jan Shuitong. Thank you, Chairman. And uh, it's really being honored to talk about, uh, talk about the China <coughs> here, faculty and students of the University of Sydney. And uh, today with, uh, we're supposed to talking about a grand strategy, but actually it's a uh, the term is a very uh, catching, it's a very fashionable in the community of international studies. But uh, actually, if you talk with the policymakers, they may tell you that they have no time to think about grand strategy because they have to handle all of the concrete issues every day. <laughs> uh, okay, let's suppose there's, because now everyone talking about China's rise and uh, everyone talking about the, the rise of China challenge the current world order, so it seems to me, and someone believe China have a grand strategy to reshape the world, create a new world. Well, actually, if we concern the grand strategy, we must, uh, someone may believe, and uh, all of the rising power has a settled strategy, and the different type of strategy will decide the future or the end of the rise. Some strategy are uh, doomed to fail. Some strategy will uh, uh, bring uh, the rising power to, uh, uh, to the leader, uh, leadership. 
Actually, my, according to my uh, understanding of the uh, IR, the uh, 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 IR history, that's not true. And uh, you cannot find any rising power, I mean successful rising power, repeated any grand strategy experienced before. So all of these uh, successful rising power based on what? Based on invention, based on creating a new strategy which is a totally new, grand new, and were never, uh, never existed before. The reason is very simple, because uh, all the rising powers in terms of the uh, uh, global uh, aspects, and uh, they have rise up in a very different period, different age, with a different technology, different economy, different uh, uh, concept, different, uh, different uh, <coughs> the, uh, the world. So in that way, if they are not creative enough, they can never success. Well, since we're talking about the grand strategy, and we have to notice that there's some change in China, that's true. And uh, before this, uh, uh, the current government and the fundamental goal of the China's uh, policy of the nation is the focus on the economic development, or the focus on economic construction. And uh, this government raised a new uh, goal for the whole nation. We call it a reju national rejuvenation. So the national rejuvenation, for someone believe, is uh, a little bit different, or in some way different, from the economic construction. And uh, since the goal is different from the pure economic development, we certainly need some new approach to achieve that goal. So what that approach is, before we know the content, we have to make it clear. This is not a foreign policy. It's not a foreign strategy. Because to achieve the goal, the rejuvenization, the mainly rely on the work at home. So that means you need a strategy to dealing with the domestic issues first, before you know how to deal with the foreign affairs. So in that way, we can have a very familiar term used very often and uh, repeatedly uh, uh, talked about by the Chinese government is a peaceful development. So from my understanding, the development refers to the domestic uh, uh, construction and uh, the peaceful refers to the relationship with the other countries. And by now, I don't think anyone believes China is facing the danger of the civil war. So if there's no civil war, we do not need concerns in how to make the country internally peaceful. And only concern, how can make our relationship with others peaceful, right? So if they make the two things together, domestic uh, strategy and the uh, foreign strategy, and from my understanding, the, there's a nothing, nothing new and uh, different from, uh, uh, from the previous uh, strategy. That means still focus on economic development. And the concentrator on the economic element is still the main strategy for the domestic uh, parts. And to come to the foreign policy, I think someone carefully studied the China foreign policy, noted that, and Xi Jinping delivered a speech uh, in uh, 2013 uh, that uh, under the title Diplomacy Toward the Surrounding Countries. And I think the translation is wrong. This translated as a the, uh, a diplomacy toward the periphery countries. I think they, this translation is not right. And uh, the second speech delivered in 2004 is a China's foreign policy. So it's a general, not only 
uh, talking about the policy toward the surrounding countries, but uh, the, uh, the, the, whole, uh, the whole world. Okay, so the, if you put these two things together as the China's new foreign grant strategy, and then people may raise the question, what's the relationship between these two speeches and the one belt, one road? Someone, hey, one belt, one road is the grand strategy and dealing with the world and uh, combining both domestic uh, 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 economic development and the foreign policy. Actually, if you read the Chinese uh, official document carefully, you find that the government have to make a distinction between the foreign strategy and one belt, one road strategy. One belt, one road strategy is a strategy for economic cooperation with the, uh, the rest of the world. And it's not equal to the uh, uh, foreign uh, strategy. So from my understanding, foreign strategy and the one belt, one road strategy, this two strategy goes, par uh, 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 goes parallel. Okay, so here we heard that a lot of people really want to talk about one belt, one road, what it is. And from my understanding, this is just a kind of a new opening up policy. In 1980s, then Deng Xiaoping adopted a policy, opening up and the reform. I think everyone knows that. And the reform is continued and maybe strengthened and uh, all reformed into the uh, 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 new uh, sectors. But uh, concerning the aspects of the opening up, this is really different. One belt, one road is uh, try to, you know, Chinese term is uh, uh, go out and uh, go out to the world. And in 1980s, in Chinese, we attract the foreign capital, foreign technology, foreign uh, experts, foreign knowledge into China. Now we try to, ex not, not export, we try to encourage or to bring China's energy, capital, technology, and uh, culture abroad. So this is the difference. And so, but by now, you, we should not misunderstand that. Now China closed the door, we do not want to get anything in. We only want guessing out. No, that's not true. And uh, we will do the uh, 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 two, uh, two, uh, two directions. So now we have one bad, one road, and then have foreign uh, uh, strategy, the two things are, uh, 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 go uh, parallelly. And uh, <clears throat> finally, I want to say, and someone say, hey, since the Chinese government already decided, oh, settled the grand strategy, seems to me there's nothing will change. Everything will, uh, 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 will go along with the, the two strategy. From my understanding, this kind of strategy only refers to the principle. When you come to the concrete issues, it may change all the time at any minute. It doesn't mean that because you have two principles or two grand strategies, so all of the, the uh, concrete uh, policy will be cited. Uh, 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 now, for instance, and here you, you, I think everyone heard that, in the early period, we're talking about the new type of, uh, a new, new type of relationship, uh, a new model, new model of the major power relations with the, between China and the United States, right? That's the very early period. And uh, after that, this uh, concept developed from the new model of relationship uh, applied for China and the US relations and to the other countries. 
to whom? To major powers. And the first country is Russia. We apply the new model of the <coughs> major power relations to Russia. And then Indian challenger China. Hey, wait a minute. Why your relationship with US and the Russia new, but with me is the old? So we, we don't think that's good. So okay, we can also develop a new relationship, new model of the relationship with the Indian. And then the, the new model of the relationship apply to almost all of the major powers. But by now, I'm not so sure about Japan. <coughs> I think Japan, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> I think Japan is a major power, but I don't think now we include Japan into this uh, uh, new model of the major power relations. Meanwhile, some secondary countries and the other countries say, hey, wait a minute, these are buyers. Why the new mode of relationship only apply to the major powers, but not the other countries? This is not equal. This is uh, not inconsistent with the uh, 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 equalness. So in that way, the, you need the equity. So in that way, now China developed new concept. It's called the new model of international relations. That means uh, we will have a new relationships with everyone. Well, I don't know how new our relationship with Australia now. And but the one thing is clear, and uh, our, we really concern Australia is an important country in what, in Asia Pacific. We do not regard it as a global power, but we do regard it Australia as an important country here. Back to the concrete issue is that how much of the grand strategy will get or limit our relationship with Australia? I think uh, Australia is a United States ally, and uh, I don't think China has any intention to try to change that. And uh, we know we cannot, and also we have no intention to, uh, to damage your relationship. But we certainly also do not want to become the second Japan. And uh, that certainly is not uh, what we wish. And uh, what, uh, we, uh, what China uh, hope, we hope you are still be America's ally, but you are in some way like a South Korea, but not Japan. Thank you. Professor Jia Pingguo. Okay, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure uh, to be back. It's a great honor to be invited to address this audience. Uh, my colleagues just talked about global water border and China's relationship to it. And then uh, Professor Yan just talked about uh, grand strategy. Uh, probably I will focus on something more concrete. Uh, but of course, before I get into that, uh, um, I think uh, I was thinking about grand, what grand strategy is. I think grand strategy is something you imagine other people have. <laughs> and when you try to think about uh, whether you yourself has a grand strategy, you have a problem. You know, when I talk to Americans, they, I, I ask them whether you have a grand strategy, they say, no, we don't have a grand strategy. If you talk to Japanese, they say, that we don't have a grand strategy. If you talk to the Chinese, they say, most likely, we don't have a grand strategy. Uh, so grand strategy is somebody else's. Uh, uh, yeah, nowadays, uh, a lot of people are talking about China-US relations. Uh, when they talk about China-US relations, many subscribe to the view that the relationship is heading for conflict and confrontation. Uh, even my good friend, uh, Professor Mike Lampton uh, of SITES, who had taken generally an uh, optimistic view about relationship for many years has sounded rather pessimistic 
about the relationship more recently. He said last year, the relationship was approaching the tipping point. Looking back at the recent events of the relationship, it appeared that such kind of concerns are justified. There are indeed many conflicts between the two countries. Look at the South China Sea. Look at the Diaoyu Islands. Look at arms sales to Taiwan. Look at cybersecurity problems. Look at AIID. The US you know, still hasn't joined the AIID, unlike other good countries. And uh, look at the alleged US intent to deploy the SAR system in South Korea, just to mention a few. However, I think this is only part of the story. The other and more important part of the story is that China and the US are actually cooperating on an increasing range of issues uh, at ever greater depth. Examples of cooperation are equally abundant. Look at the trade and investment between the two countries. It's huge. Look at the non, their cooperation on non-proliferation of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. More recently, China joined the US and other countries uh, and had passed a resolution uh, to uh, impose sanctions on North Korea or stricter round of sanctions against North Korea. And both China and the US protect, uh, cooperate in protecting the sea lanes. Uh, China actually sent a fleet to the Gulf of Eden to protect the sea lanes, uh, in, in partly in response to uh, the US uh, call. And also, the two countries are cooperating over uh, you know, the efforts to fight terrorism. And more recently, they are working together to push for a resolution at the Paris summit on climate change. And they are also cooperating on issues like anti-corruption, mill-mill uh, relations, people-to-people -people change, exchange, and also nuclear and cyber security. Okay. Uh, actually, the two countries are uh, having a dialogue on how to establish order in the cyberspace. Will China and the US fall into the so-called Lucidity's trap or to fight each other? My answer is that it is quite unlikely. First, the stakes are too high. Uh, the two economies uh, uh, would suffer tremendously because uh, they are so interdependent uh, if there is a military conflict. Second, both countries are nuclear weapon countries. Ever since the event of nuclear weapons, nuclear weapon countries do not fight each other because it doesn't make sense. Second, there are better ways for these two countries to advance their respective interests. They can enrich themselves, uh, be more uh, you know, respected uh, through trade and investment, through people-to-people -people exchange, through joint efforts to deal with global and regional challenges. As China acquires, thirdly, as China acquires more stakes in the existing international order, China has become a beneficiary and therefore increasingly a supporter and defender of that order. 
some in China may wish to find an alternative to replace that order. However, China's interests tell them that it is not going to work. Yeah. That explains why increasingly China's helping to maintain the international order. Some people say, oh, look at AIIB. Uh, what are you doing there? Okay. Uh, actually, if you look at this issue very carefully, what China really wants is to have more say in the international financial institutions rather than replacing them with something different. If you look at AIIB now, it's more like a complement to the existing international financial institutions rather than an alternative to them. That, to some extent, explains why, despite China's rapid rise so far, China and the United States have found more in their interest to work with each other than to confront each other, and are more likely to do so in the future. If you look at the potential for cooperation uh, in the future, I think it's even greater. Uh, the trend of change in China promises more room for cooperation. Uh, China has been undergoing deepening reforms. In the past few years, China, the Chinese Communist Party passed, the 18th Party Congress passed uh, two resolutions, the so-called third and fourth plenum resolutions uh, on reforms. If these reforms uh, are put into practice, we are likely to see more role for the market, more rule of law, more responsible governance, more accountability of officials. Therefore, more like China will become more like the United States. Second, there, the change in China's relationship with the existing order, or interna existing international order, necessitates more cooperation between the two countries. As China rises, China finds more and more difficult to take a free ride uh, just like the United States, uh, because it's too big. If it takes a free ride, the bus collapses, uh, collapses. So there is more need for China to help maintain the international order in order to advance its own interests, either in terms of freedom of navigation, in terms of non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, in terms of open uh, and uh, free international trade and investment arrangement, uh, so, so on and so forth. So increasingly, China finds the need to defend the existing international order and uh, when it wants to advance its own interests. If these are what China is going to do, then there is more room for China and the United States to cooperate in the future. To what extent, therefore, the potential of cooperation between the two countries can be realized uh, depends on both Beijing and Washington, how they handle their relationship. I think as far as Beijing concerned, uh, whether it will be able to define its interests in a forward-looking way is very important. Forward-looking way, I mean, uh, China would uh, devise its policies according to its uh, changing interests, uh, like becoming a more developed country, so it should follow, uh, it, it should uh, adapt its policies uh, in that direction uh, as a developed country, more, more as a developed country, uh, rather than uh, 
as uh, insist on the policies that are more suitable as a developing country in the old days, uh, especially on questions like climate change. Okay. And also, it also depends on be whether Beijing will be able to exercise the newly acquired power prudently. Okay. I remember once uh, Dr. Kissinger was asked by, by our students uh, how you know, he thinks uh, China-US relationship should be managed. He said, in a uh, typical Kissingerian way, uh, well, uh, the US should learn to adapt to the rise of China, and China should learn to uh, learn the limits of its power. I think there is some wisdom to it, I think, uh, his advice should be observed by the Chinese government. And, and of course, Washington has his own share of responsibility to make this relationship work. Uh, so the relationship, whether the relationship uh, can uh, attain greater degree of cooperation also depends on to which extent uh, Washington is able to adapt to the rise of China, and also to what extent it will be able to persuade China what it does in, in the name of hedging means no harm to China. Despite the current pessimism, I re remain uh, cautiously optimistic about the relationship in the, for the following reasons. First, the history of the in interactions between the two countries show that leaders of the two countries are wise enough to find ways to accommodate each other. Second, after many years of interactions, the two countries have established enough channels and mechanisms for communication. Uh, so they are unlikely to misread each other in a major way. Third, Chinese leaders show uh, now are very much committed to the building of a new type of great power relations between the two countries. Uh, the Chinese government hasn't changed its position so far despite the US half-hearted uh, acceptance. Uh, fourth, American leaders, either Obama or the future leaders we know, like Clinton, or maybe Donald Trump, uh, <laughs> attach great importance to China-US relations and are committed to making it work. Uh, and finally, there's really no better way for the two countries uh, other than coexisting and cooperating with each other. Uh, in their efforts to advance their interests. So uh, with that, uh, I'll end my talk. Thank you very much. Now to begin the conversation and discussion and probable debate, uh, Colin White is going to say uh, a few things for a few minutes. Okay, great. Well, uh, thanks everybody for coming and thanks to our three guests from China. It was really interesting to hear what you had to say. John's only given us two minutes each, which you can't say much in two minutes apart from hello and goodbye. I'm probably gonna take about three or four. John doesn't know this, but it'll be a quick three or four, so it'll seem like two. Uh, I th it's interesting that you mentioned Trump. I'm gonna start with Donald Trump to kind of frame my d uh, points around one overarching question that I would maybe like the speakers to reflect on. If you look at Donald Trump's uh, overall narrative that frames all his foreign policy pronouncements, and you probably shouldn't do that 
in the first place. But Trump actually thinks that America is a country in decline, and the reason for that decline are the costs it's had to pay to, to be the leader of the international system. So Trump really wants the rest of the world to pay for the costs, and America still to be the leader. So the question I have is, does China really know what it's getting into by becoming a great power? So what are the costs of becoming a great power, and how might that affect China? So very quickly, I've got three, maybe four things I want to say. The first thing is this idea of China rising. I don't, I don't think we need to overly kind of complicate this. It's the idea, really, that China is beginning to exercise more power in the international system and play a greater role in terms of the maintenance of the international order. And I think that's undeniably true. But the problem is m most, and I'm not an expert at China, so I'm going to uh, concentrate my comments on international relations theory. Most people would separate out domestic politics from international politics. And the problem is, can you continue to do that in today's world? Now, the closest thing we have to a law in international politics is said to be democratic peace theory. And the argument here goes is that democracies don't fight each other, but countries that aren't alike possibly will lead to conflict. So my friend John Mearsheimer, of course, has, has argued extensively that China's rise will inevitably lead to conflict with the USA, precisely because of the great power dynamics of the international system. And I think that the problem is that international relations only really operates in an arena where you can trust what the other side is doing. So you have to be able to in interpret the other state's actions at the international level. Now, why the democratic peace theorists think that democracies don't fight each other is they think they trust the actions of each other at the international level. So the question I have for uh, my colleagues from China is, can China rise at the international level without reform at the domestic level? And how are its actions going to be interpreted at the international level? Because without that trust, it becomes very difficult for states to interact. So that's the first question. Is China's place in the international order going to be dependent on some kind of domestic reform. And I'm not saying, I mean, you know, I mentioned Trump, but, you know, American democracy is not perfect. Democracy in Australia is not perfect. I'm not saying democracy is the best model of political organization, although there might be good reasons people want to defend that. But can China rise without problems with the rest of the world at the international level without domestic reform? I think that is a problem. The second thing is, I don't actually think China is a reformist state at the international level. In fact, I think China has a rather outdated model of international sovereignty. It's really wedded to, uh, I spent a bit of time in China, many in Shanghai talking to scholars, it's really wedded to what we call the Westphalian model of sovereignty. And the key aspect of that for the Chinese is, it's not really autonomy, it's non-interference. What sovereignty gives states is that they're free from interference from other states. Now, to a large extent, that might have existed at the end of the 19th to beginning of the 20th century. But that model of sovereignty perhaps isn't as applicable today as it might have been in the past. And it seems to me the Chinese really are working with a, a, a quite outdated model of sovereignty. And in all my discussion with Chinese scholars, this becomes most apparent, and it does go to the issue of universal values, in issues like R2P, the responsibility to protect and so on, which the Chinese are very kind of suspicious of because they see R2P as a kind of Trojan horse to undercut uh, national sovereignty. So 
So I think that's a major problem. And then the third point I want to make is that with great power, it's an old phrase, comes great responsibility. Now, we are critical, of course, of the Americans and American foreign policy, particularly, well, you could look actually since World War II, but particularly since Iraq in 2003. But in a lot of instances, if you look at America and Kosovo, they had to be dragged into those conflicts. To a large extent, America doesn't want to be in those conflicts. And the problem is that when you're a great power, the system expects you to play some role in policing this, the system. The international community expect, expects you to play a role. And the question, I think, for my colleagues is, is China prepared to step up? Because once it has that form of power at the, inter, at the, in, in the international system, there are going to be accords on it to act in the same way we expect America to act. And I'm not actually sure that the Chinese worldview really wants them to play that role. So for me, these are interesting times. I am cautiously optimistic, but there are dangers there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Colin. Uh, Justin, thanks. <laughs> okay, I'll try to keep it to uh, Less than two minutes, we'll see. Um, so I, I, I found all, all three of the um, comments very interesting. Uh, and sort of just to bring them all together, I think what, what unifies all of them is really this issue of Chinese economic development, right? Because so when we say, well, why is China able to change the rules of the game in the way, to the extent that it has with the AIB and things like that? It's because of its economic development. Other countries value that. And the extent that China is able to change the rules of the game is usually because of economic in the economic sphere, not in the political sphere, right? Um, so in that sense, economic development is both providing the ability of China to interact with the international system on its own, um, in its own way, but it's also in some sense a big problem, right? Because up till now, it seems like, you know, we're talking about before about domestic security in China. Economic development has been providing domestic security for China, right? For its rise, right? Um, and to the extent that economic development stops or stalls, this is a big problem domestically, right? Uh, and, and arguably, I mean, depending on how you count it, China's now spending a great deal of money on domestic security, right? Uh, precisely because it's worried about this. And so I, I guess the question you would have is, what happens if economic development doesn't work anymore, right? What happens if, in some sense, China's faced with a situation where it needs to sort of push its foreign policy and it needs to um, continue to move forward without having a rapid economic growth model, right? Um, and, and I think this sort of plays into foreign policy as well. Um, if we think about sort of China's focus, we said before, well, China's always been focused on domestic economic growth. That's true, right? But at some point, if you want to continue you know, developing domestically, you need to start basically using uh, foreign policy to help you develop domestically, right? Uh, and in some ways, that's good, right? So we see China going into the world, the sort of changing the rules of the game, becoming more involved in um, sort of international economic institutions. That's a good thing, right? Um, there are other things that might be neutral. China is getting involved in Africa, right? And in some ways, that's good. In some ways, that's very problematic. But there are other situations where China's push for economic development could also become problematic from a foreign policy point of view and from an international order point of view. Right? And when you think of sort of the South China Sea, without sort of the merits, discussing the merits of it, it becomes an issue where many of the aspects associated with exploitation of the South China Sea's resources are causing China to come into conflict with, with other countries. So I, I think this is a situation where we cannot really separate domestic policy from foreign policy, especially now that China's reached a stage where it really does need um, 
to essentially use foreign policy as a way to continue its, its um, domestic economic growth. And finally, I just want to sort of agree with um, one, of the, one of the statements that Professor Jia made, and maybe this is a, a sort of a, an issue for um, optimism. It is true that China and the US have an interest in protecting the, the public commons and cooperating. Uh, and I think we sometimes forget that at the height of the Cold War, the US and the Soviet Union actually cooperated quite a bit. Right, um, and things that they were interested in and things that they had um, similar interest in, like the non-proliferation treaty, right, for the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, which the US and the Soviet Union both pushed and then basically forced their allies to actually adopt, right? Um, I mean, that's ultimately why North Korea opted into it, because the Soviet <laughs> Union and China pushed it, right? Um, and so in that sense, there, you know, it could be a situation where we're seeing not the conflict between the US and China, but actually the US and China ganging up on smaller countries together, which may or may not be a good thing, but I, it's not necessarily a given that um, the only situation we're dealing with is, is US-China conflict. Thank you. Thomas. Um, thank you, Chair. Thank you, speakers. Um, yeah, just a couple of quick points. Uh, first, uh, mainly directed to uh, Wang Jisa, um, talked about how uh, China takes a dim view of the US alliance system, uh, and us, the government has often gone re on record saying that these uh, US alliances are relics of the Cold War and so forth. But um, China has its own friends and allies as well, um, and particularly um, amongst the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the strategic partnership with uh, Russia. It's not a full-blown alliance, but it's, it's certainly an alignment. And last but not least, it's treaty ally um, relationships with Pakistan and North Korea. And uh, North Korea, uh, there's been an alliance with uh, China since 1961, and uh, that was renewed in 2001. Is it likely to be renewed again when it's due for expiration in 2021? Um, then uh, my second point, uh, mainly to, uh, to Yan Suitong, um, I'm not sure if I quite heard this correctly, but uh, anyway, I uh, specialize in Australia-Japan relations and their relationship with the United States. And I wasn't sure if I quite heard you correctly um, about uh, um, saying that China would be very unhappy about a uh, security um, partnership or, or whatever with, uh, uh, between Australia and Japan, and uh, how that might be reflected when, uh, when uh, Australia um, probably purchases Japanese submarine technology. Uh, and further deepens the strategic, strategic partnership that it's built. And then um, lastly, uh, both of my, my Sydney colleagues have um, alluded to intermestic politics, whether it might be economic or political trends. So I, I just wanted to raise a really couple of slightly topical issues. Uh, the first one being the Panama Papers and the effect that this has had uh, on exposing some of um, China's elite, um, both business elite, but also leadership and connections and how this intersects with the, uh, the current anti-corruption drive and the catching the tigers. And um, in intersecting with that, of course, as well, is the, um, the tightening of um, domestic restrictions on censorship and freedom of expression, um, and how this might impact upon um, other discontented quarters of Chinese society, uh, not least the uh, umbrella and fishball revolution movements in, uh, in Hong Kong. So uh, I'd just like to uh, throw those out there and uh, see uh, how the, uh, the panelists would like to respond. Thank you. Would our guests uh, like to say a few words or shall we go straight to question and answer and then you can think about what you have to say about the comments. Shall we, shall we go straight to, to, to question and answer? Unless you have something burning to say about Thucydides' traps or... 
or Panama Papers or... <laughs> no, they, they, they're, they're going to bide their time. Okay, so could you please, uh, questions, and could you please state uh, your name and try to make them as brief as possible. There are two roving mics, and um, there is someone here who will be the first questioner. Thank you all for your illuminating talks. This is just a quick, I think pretty simple question for Jan Suetong. I mentioned um, the, uh, the One Belt, One Road initiative and how China views its purposes. And I think you started to say uh, China would like to export its goods to the rest of the world. And then you stopped yourself and said, not, not export, but bring its goods and services and presence to the rest of the world. And I think Zhongzhouji um, is the spirit that you were talking about. But I was wondering if you could say something about the difference of that spirit of Zhongzhouji and, and exporting, particularly bringing goods to the rest of the world. What's the difference between bringing and, and exporting? Thanks. Well, okay, the actually, <coughs> The uh, major difference is that China concern and uh, our technology experience of uh, economic construction and education and the research and the capital and have uh, dramatically improved in the last 30 years. So in now uh, in, the, uh, in comparison with the 1980s, and uh, we no longer, for instance, we no longer need the foreign capital that much but we really face uh, under the heavy burden, have two huge foreign reserves. We need to spend the money abroad. So we need to invest the money somewhere rather than to get foreign investment. In terms of technology, the same. And we do, everyone talking about the Li Keqiang to the advertisement for China's high-speed train. And we have, we have built the highway and the uh, speed train, uh, railway, and then we still have this capability to produce many, uh, produce highways and uh, high-speed uh, uh, railways, but then we no longer need that much. So we want to export this technology, capital, and, uh, and, and the products. And so what's the difference about this, uh, uh, the brain? And uh, talking in Chinese, we're talking about renzai. And renzai, uh, Chinese government still can, hey, we attract, we want to attract the renzai uh, uh, inside. By now, we have not considered to export renzai or the uh, human resources. And uh, uh, in the last 30 years, mainly we exported these uh, uh, blue color workers to do the construction, <laughs> right? And we, uh, now well, yeah, we, in, uh, uh, we imported the intellectuals, uh, high tech uh, experts. But now, and for China, we still keep this policy like that. Personally, I, I hold different view. And the Renzai, the human resources, sh should not only including this uh, high-tech experts or the financial experts or the economic experts. We do need the political experts. Because all of the reform, if we want to make them successful, we have to start it from political reform. And uh, the political reform is the base for the successful uh, uh, economic reform. So I'm political determinism. I regard the political reform is the base for 
the economic achievements. And opposite from Marxist view, economic base is uh, uh, the uh, economic base for decided the uh, political superstructure. So now, and I think this idea in China still not changed, and economic determinism is still very popular. And uh, they concern that if we want to make the country uh, growing faster or resume the economy and uh, get out of the economic, current economic stagnation, we need a more economic capability, economic resources, and economic uh, intelli intelligence. Actually, I think uh, now if we do not uh, reform the political uh, sector effectively, we cannot achieve that econo uh, economic result. There is one here, and also one on the back here. But but the gentleman here is is. Thank you. Thanks. Could you mention your name, please? Yes, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, good evening, Peng uh, Tu from the Australia-China Friendship Society. <coughs> Thanks to uh, Sydney University and the three speakers that comes all the way uh, from China, much appreciated. Uh, my question is, to what, to what extent will China tolerate Australia acting as a so-called sheriff of the United States of America? And to what trade-off or potential trade-off have to be made by Australia to maintain or sustain this position? And further to this, does China considers that Australia is too weak to be able to change its current stance? Thank you. My questions are not targeted at any particular uh, speakers, but uh, if possible, uh, I will welcome views from all three speakers. Thank you. Um, Summarise, that's quite a blunt question. Uh, do we matter in the region? And uh, what about um, the signs, the long history of deep attachment to the United States? What, what you all three asked this. One of you would like to say something about this? There is no need to be polite. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think Australia. Uh, in handling its relationship with China and the United States has been trying to take a balanced approach or has been balancing uh, uh, between Chinese and U.S. demands. Okay. Uh, it's a difficult position for, the US, uh, for, for Australia because uh, U.S. is uh, Australia's best ally and China is, the U is uh, Australia's largest part trading partner. Uh, you have to have security and food at the same time, right? Uh, you don't want to give, give up either. Uh, so uh, uh, I think a successive Australian government has been trying to do this uh, uh, balancing act. Uh, more recently, I think, uh, uh, especially the last gov government uh, tilted toward uh, the United States a little bit more. Uh, uh, and of course, that has impact also on this this uh, administration. Uh, personally, I think uh, probably it's better for the U for Australia to continue 
the balancing act rather than tilting uh, uh, to, each, to either side uh, as far as Australia's best interests are concerned. One of the things I don't understand is the Australian government's recent decision to allow uh, US to use uh, Australia as a base for its G2 bombers. Now, G2 bombers are strategic weapons. They are not like uh, the previous decision uh, on the part of Australia to agree to host some uh, soldiers uh, in Darwin, okay, a few hundred soldiers uh, for training. That's fine. That's not that's far away uh, from China, and, and the size of uh, US soldiers are not many. But then the decision to host bombers to allow the US to use bomber, uh, the uh, uh, Australian base uh, with its bombers, that's a different, different uh, uh, thing as far as China is concerned. So uh, if you ask me uh, whether uh, to give Australian government an advice, I think probably it should be more cautious when it <coughs> tries to make decisions like this. Uh, not for the good of China, but for the good of Australia. May I just um, press you a little bit, uh, Professor Jia, to, to say something, uh, perhaps others want to join, about what is not negotiable from the point of view of Beijing as far as Australian foreign policy and commercial strategies are in the region? What is, what is off the table? What, what, what is not negotiable? You've mentioned uh, the G2 bombers, but, but in your view, what matters are, so to say, sacrosanct, not discussable or not negotiable from the point of view of China? Well, if we ask the Chinese government, uh, probably uh, Taiwan is not negotiable. <laughs> and uh, interference in China's internal affairs is not negotiable. Uh, and uh, G2 bombers, uh, you know, it has it, it's, it's a problem because it's related to the recent uh, conflicts uh, between China and the U.S. Uh, if you, uh, normally, if China does not have problems with the U.S., uh, then it's, it may not be regarded as a, uh, you know, something unfriendly. But yeah. when China and the U.S. have problems in the South China Sea, and then, you know, you have, and when the U.S. try to uh, deploy uh, and encourage, uh, strengthen its, uh, its alliance relationship with its Chinese neighbors and, and make military deployments and, and, and Australia help uh, uh, the US in terms of uh, you know, uh, E2 bombers, that's a strategic weapon. Uh, this becomes uh, offensive to China uh, uh, in this kind of contest. Okay. So it also depends on the contest. Thank you. Question uh, here, and then there's a woman there. Yes, please. Uh, yes, um, I apologize. I come a little bit late. Could I'm you say to the wrong place. The notice. Could, could uh, I'm very glad that the party center sent this Sanji Those who may know, know that these the most important truly academic leaders in China of China who are, we have now. Uh, may I ask uh, a, a difficult question? Sir, please, please may I ask you to uh, introduce uh, from yourself. From Chongyi, from UTS. Uh, there is a Zhao Jiaren thesis 
The concept of Zhao uh, family people. Um, I want you to comment it. Maybe a little bit too difficult, but uh, the theory is that, um, of course, in terms of natural interest, the United States, China, very have a lot to cooperate. But on the other hand, the Zhao Jiaren or the top leaders, the top uh, um, uh, aristocracy families, have their own different interest and different perception of the world. So the theory goes in that way that uh, is that possible for those bad leaders or bad families who work against the national interest and lead China into conflict or even war with the United States or Australia or other countries? Thank you. I think uh, uh, an earlier comment was also related to the, the interaction between China's domestic politics and China's foreign policy. I do see, as a scholar, a very strong influence of domestic politics on foreign policy. Uh, for one thing, China, uh, you know, people say China is a communist country. Uh, I would say China is a communist-led country uh, or a socialist country. That is not going to change. Uh, and then we have the so-called democratic peace theory. And I studied that theory, and I don't have a big problem with the, 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 the theoretical foundation that democratic countries, if they are mature enough, they don't fight each other. But there are countries who, which go from authoritarianism, authoritarianism to more diversified uh, public opinion or diversified politics. And there is the danger that if, if you go from you know, total control to loosening your political control at home, nationalism, populism, and other uh, radicalism will rise up and influence government thinking and government policies. There is such a danger there. Uh, people are concerned that the, you know, the Communist Party may, may dominate the, the, the political scene and don't allow different voices to rise up. Well, I can understand the, the concern, but I'm more concerned about loosening political control uh, or, or, or too much diverse, diversity of opinions, and that is happening in China. Uh, and public opinion polls, if we do really do those public opinion polls, we we see polarization of political ideas. Some are, you know, that, uh, that is why I'm not going to say too much about domestic politics there, but I, I do think that we should, should continue to have a stable political situation going to the direction of more political reform, allowing more different voices to, to, uh, to, 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 to be heard, uh, and then we should have also the, you know, cons consolidate uh, the, the, the central leadership for, for a more sensible uh, uh, foreign policy. I mean, the, the policy now is, is quite uh, stable. 
you know, this, you know, we also we all talk about the, the slogans, the, uh, the new new models of great power relations or common destiny and so on. So we 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 as scholars, we may not be very much. Uh, 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 excited about this new slogan, but we still know the you know the essence of, the essence of the foreign policy is still that we want a peaceful in environment. We want to open to the outside world, and we try to influence uh, in the, po the, po the foreign policy in a positive way. As we are also in favor of more more reform at home, but the the reform should be incremental. Uh, gradual uh, r moving in the right direction. Uh, very brief. Actually, the Kosovo War is a very, very prominent uh, subject for IR studies. And this kind of study has lasted for uh, hundreds of years. And uh, uh, most of the uh, IR scholars agree that. And uh, the Kosovo War is uh, diversified, all kinds of uh, reasons. You cannot hardly find uh, one uh, variable determines all wars, and uh, you, can, you find uh, all kinds of uh, different reasons. Well, if we're concerning whether the domestic uh, politics uh, can uh, cause war, and uh, that really depends. And for instance, America is a democratic country, but America involves the war in the world after the Cold War more than any country else. Maybe as a, uh, if you could look, uh, take into the account of time, America involved the uh, war as long as the Iraq. And the Indian is also a democratic country. Indians are sporadically involved in the war, but not that frequently, like the United States. And some countries regarded very peaceful, like the Germany. And I mean, so not uh, old Germany before World War II, but uh, today. And then even the Germany involved several wars after Cold War. So if you're concerned the East Asian countries, no matter China or Japan, our political system is very different. But then you find these two countries are very peaceful. And since the, the China has not involved in the war since 1988 and more than 30 years, Japan has not involved the real war and since 1945. So the, political, the difference of the political system do not mean these two countries were involved in the war uh, uh, accordingly. And uh, certainly someone argue that the Japan and uh, not that peaceful because they send the troops to the war in the Iraq and uh, to, to support the US. Well, the American, uh, the Pentagon com uh, com uh, 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 complain about that. They said that they said some uh, instruction, uh, instruction troops there, but then we have to send more troops to protect them because they, they cannot suffer any damage and as a faculty. So from my clear argument that if you, uh, generally speaking, I want to say, the, the Asia Pacific is a relatively peaceful region. If you look at the situation from the, uh, the end of the Cold War in 1992, uh, uh, you find that there's no real war in this region. And even in Europe, there's a war in Kosovo, war in the uh, uh, the uh, Georgia, the war in the um, uh, in the, the uh, Ukraine, and the the Europeans are very proud of their capability to maintaining peace. Unfortunately, they cannot maintain the same peace like we did in the Asia Pacific. Carlos, great. Just, just, just very briefly, I'm I'm not sure I understood the question correctly, but 
if I did, I, I wouldn't put too much faith in our political leaders. I mean, for most of the evidence that we have is policymaking is not a very rational process at the, at the level of the state. So that, that, that's not one, what underlies my cautious optimism. Why I'm cautiously optimistic is I think there's been a normative change in the international system. So war, war is less accepted now as a means of resolving disputes. There are other forms of power and mediation that states are expected to use. That doesn't mean war is impossible, but it's not the first resort. It's not, and it's not, it's not easy for any state in the international system to just unleash military force any longer. There are all sorts of norms in the system that change. So that's what underlies my cautious optimism. Not, not faith in political leaders, because I think that's a dead, dead end. Sinich. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Yeah. I just, uh, name, just wonder what my name's Terry. Name, Terry Houlihan. Uh, this might sound like a joke, but what was uh, was even a millisecond of thought time given to whether China could provide us with a a new submarine? <laughs> okay. Second question is a bit more serious. Um, is there much thought in the Communist Party about uh, in, in China, about the advantages of having a change of government, I mean, a complete sweep. Now, I know there's a great, there's, we, most of us feel fairly safe with a strong government like ours or, or America's dealing with a strong government in China and we're not frightened of, uh, uh, you know, madmen taking power, but, but just the advantages of, economic advantages of letting someone else in and lessening uh, internal uh, checking up on people and things like that if, if the system provided a bit more uh, flexibility for another kind of government at some time. Thank you. Uh, perhaps I could add to that because um, Ya Guo uh, made the point that uh, I quoted Henry Kissinger uh, and said it was wise, you know, that the US should learn to adapt to the rise of China, and China should learn to observe its own limits. But learning to observe limits requires openness, does it not? And our perception outside of China is that there is closure going on. I wondered if you might, I mean, the questions overlap, and I wondered whether you might say something about intelligent foreign policy, wise foreign policy that actually requires uh, an openness, an internal domestic openness, because as Colin has pointed out, and all of you agree, foreign policy making, big power uh, requires responsibility, but it's also immensely complicated, full of, full of dilemmas. Doesn't this require openness? Well, uh, the first question, submarine, you know, China is happy to sell you the suffering, but, but we are not going to be, uh, but, but, but then China, uh, I hope China will learn uh, to be wise uh, enough to, to work with Japan and to set up a joint company so that you don't take advantage of our competition. <laughs> Just kidding. But anyway, uh, uh, I, I think uh, China, for its own sake, uh, needs to be more open. Actually, this is uh, also uh, uh, <coughs> the government policy uh, 
But in the last few years, uh, uh, you have seen some uh, uh, efforts to close the door, uh, uh, or that appear to be closing the door. Uh, uh, there are obstacles to go overseas for people and that sort of thing, in part because of the anti-corruption campaign. Okay. Too many corrupt officials you know, fled the country. Okay. Uh, and the government, the party wants to keep these people at home so that they get justice. Second, the party is also worried that uh, some officials or too many officials have uh, used the public money to uh, do sightseeing overseas. And that's something should be, uh, that, that needs to be curbed. Uh, so this is one aspect of the restrictions. Another aspect of the restrictions is the fear uh, of, uh, of uh, threats, uh, national security threats, uh, risks. Uh, you know, people who are in charge of the security apparatus, uh, they imagine things. They don't, they don't travel very, very often overseas. Uh, so they imagine things. Uh, they want to make sure that the, the secrets are not disclosed and, uh, and, and then the national secrets will be kept at home. So, so there are efforts to tighten uh, the, 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 the rules uh, to make sure that, uh, that national secrets would not be uh, leaked uh, this is happening at the, uh, in the real world and also in the cyberspace. Uh, so, uh, and of course, there is also this un uh, feeling of insecurity. Uh, that's the part in which China appears to be weak. Uh, that our institutions, uh, you know, if you have dissent, uh, if you have uh, people, uh, ideas coming in, uh, then some people are worried that this would weaken the political system. So as a result of all these things, uh, th there are some restric increasing restrictions uh, uh, at home. Uh, I, I, but I think uh, it, this may be, uh, I hope this is uh, temporary. Uh, I think uh, given time, uh, China would resume uh, and be more open to the outside world. You know, nowadays, if you want to have your economy sustainable, what do you do? You have the one belt, one road, but <laughs> things like that, right? You, you need to go overseas to integrate, to work together with, the, uh, with other countries on economic issues. And if you want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, let encourage Chinese culture to go out, what do you do? You encourage Chinese people to go out, right? To meet with other people and to, to share the, uh, with them, you know, what, uh, what the Chinese culture means, uh, your understanding of it, uh, and so on and so forth. We need a more open China, that's for sure. I think anybody who wants to close China uh, uh, from the outside world, eventually uh, will, be, uh, will find themselves on the wrong side of history. I say a few words. <coughs> yes, uh, please. Uh, then there is a woman here waiting. She's been waiting for some time. Please. Uh, I agree with uh, Professor Jia that uh, we need more openness. More, we need a more transparent uh, political system. But this is quite different from uh, from sources, open sources of information. Actually, we 
have too much information sometimes, not too little, uh, especially in this information age. Uh, I think the, the three of us, we, we read uh, Western media very often, almost uh, on a daily basis with, uh, with firewalls, without firewalls. Uh, we actually, we know, and we travel abroad, and many people travel abroad, and especially the top leaders travel abroad. I think that they are better informed of the outside world than the ordinary people. The thing is not whether they know more, they, they get more information or not, but you know, uh, there is the also uh, whether the public uh, is better informed or, or, or not, not their, their information is, is, is not balanced enough. That is our, where our worries come from. Uh, for one thing, uh, because I studied in the United States for, for a long time, but public, the public knowledge that is, is that the United States is a declining power. It goes, goes down and you know, domestic <coughs> politics is in, in very bad shape. I don't agree. And the, the people I know above me, I mean the, the top leaders and the, 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 the very high-ranking officials, they never say the United States is a declining power. Uh, they, they, because they go to international conferences, they know the situations there, they know the United States is much more powerful than China is. So their policy making is not based on the false information that the United States is a declining power. At least uh, two candidates in the American presidential election campaign actually say the opposite. Uh, and that's <laughs> but the Obama administration may, may, may never say that the United States is a declining power. We, we watch that very closely. Uh, Wendy. Um, Wendy, when, whenever get into power, we'll say that the United States is the strongest power, uh, country in the world. <laughs> when they are competing with each other, they attack the, the establishment. Uh, hello, my, na uh, my name is Charmaine, and I'm a student of law and international relations at the University of Sydney. Um, so, as an Australian-born Chinese, my Chinese relatives often tell me that China is going to conquer the world one day. Um, so, I wonder if there's a mismatch between the Chinese collective consciousness and the actual political aspirations of China in terms of superseding the US as a world power. And if China does have these aspirations, instead of focusing on economic and military power, how much of a role would expanding China's soft power and cultural influence play in allowing China to achieve its alleged aspirations? Soft power, okay. <laughs> well, <coughs> since uh, the Joseph Nye invented the term, coined the term of soft power, this becomes a very popular concept. And um, actually, uh, by now, I think, uh, the definition about the soft power is really, really uh, controversial, mm. and the people have, uh, have different view about what it is. But uh, uh, unfortunately, before people agree what it is, everyone uses the term to express a different opinion. And uh, could first, I want to say, it is not whether the Chinese have the, ch the, the desire or try to be the superpower. The, Superpower is uh, what it is. It's not uh, what you want to be. And so from understanding China, whether China is a superpower is not judged by itself, not decided by its will. And uh, I think every country wants to be the superpower, but uh, it doesn't mean because they have the will is possible. 
So for me, whether China is a superpower, it, whether it is or it is not, no matter Chinese want it or not, even all of the Chinese said, we really hate the superpower, we don't want to be the superpower. But if you really have more money than the US, more uh, 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 aircraft carriers than the US, have a, a better a weaponry system than the US, and you cannot deny you are a superpower. And second, and uh, about the soft power, whether, what kind of a Chinese uh, 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 political or the cultural influence on, uh, on the world? From my understanding, the cultural influence already spread all over the world. And uh, the typical case is that the UK sent a delegation to Shanghai to learn about the primary school education. And then they found that, hey, it's really important why the Chinese kids can do the calculation better than the British kids because they have the jujubiao, they know how to do the matrix by the nine plus nine, and nine times nine. And so now they uh, invented the English version of the jujubiao. And for, no, yes, that's true, that's not a joke. And the government has already required all the primary kids must remember this, otherwise you cannot graduate from the primary school. And also the uh, tiger mother in the US, and so, from my understanding, as long as you make achievements, and then if you make a bigger or better achievement than others, and then others will image the, your cultural uh, uh, behavior. And uh, that's a natural thing. It's not need the government effort to do it. So personally, I, I don't think it's the right idea for the Chinese government to push or to, uh, to push forward to push outside the Chinese ideology or the culture and to improve the Chinese soft power abroad. And from my understanding, any country export their ideology will be regarded as imperialism. So in traditional classical realism, we define the imperialism only by they want to make others believe what they believe is right. Uh, we, we have one last question, and then we're going to summarize uh, briefly uh, tonight's. I'm sorry for those, there are many people who've been left out. Yeah, thank could, you. Could you say I'm your name, Shang Yin Yang, the postgraduate of the government and international relations. Thank you very much for the wonderful speech. Uh, I would like to ask uh, two small questions. One is that, uh, since China now try to uh, promote its new model to the world by either the one belt, one road strategy or the other opening policies. So does this mean that China is trying to um, present or bring about a new model to the world to make the <coughs> world uh, uh, much more diverse, uh, make it a, a much more diversity? I mean, bring in the new political system that's to compare uh, with the Western democratic system or to bring in a new option that the world can consider outside the democracy. So, and the second, uh, we know that Chinese government now confronting great difficulties in, uh, in its governance. So, uh, and we are all curious about that, whether the Chinese Communist Party will change its name to uh, meet the favor of the Western world in order to be accepted as one of us. Um, 
So, uh, and the last small question is that, what China expects Australia to do to provide this forum to uh, make the China-US relationship better and then to make the world would be better? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what I suggest we do is, since we're running out of time and I'm going to get guillotined here, uh, is that we, in reverse order, uh, beginning with uh, Thomas, just a few uh, summary remarks, uh, things that struck you, uh, points about which we were silent. Could you try, Thomas? Um, not off the top of my head. I'll defer my <laughs> questions to the next person. All right. Uh, Justin. I'm good. I'm good. You're good. <laughs> Turning out to be a very lively panel here. Uh, Colin. I can always say something. Whether it's mean and follows a different matter. Uh, I think the, the, the major issue for me, and, and I agree, you know, it's not a case of China wanting to be a superpower. If it is a superpower, it is a superpower. And the question is, what is the... It's not really so much about Chinese actions as what is the rest of the system going to do about that? and how are they going to do it? And this is where I think trust at the international level is, is really important. And what, what do things mean? So you, you talk about the B-2 bombers. What does putting the B-2 bombers mean in that arena? And so it, it is all about how, how you build up patterns of trust, cooperation. And there is this idea of a win-win situation, which you'll hear in, uh, in discourse about here. The problem is that the international system you can all win, but it's not the same. Realists will point out that actually what matters more is how much you win compared to me. Yeah. And these are what we call relative gains. Yeah. And realists will all, so it's an, everybody can win, but if I win more than the rest of you, that's not gonna be in your favor. So this is gonna be a problem. So trust is the key. Uh, okay, I'll just uh, uh, respond to your question, uh, one by one road. I think it's, it's not a strategy. The Chinese government says it's an initiative that is uh, for the benefit of China and also for its neighbors. And it's not a political strategy. It's, uh, it's not a political initiative. It's more a sort of a economic initiative with cultural uh, implications. Uh, that is, it uh, promotes cultural and people-to-people -people exchange. Uh, and uh, I don't think the Chinese government wants to use it uh, to uh, export its uh, political model. And I don't believe that, the, so far the Chinese government has been saying that our political system is, uh, is a Chinese one uh, rather than a <coughs> universal one. Unlike what the US, when they, what the Americans uh, uh, talk about the market, the way the Americans talk about their version of government, they think that it's universally applicable. But whenever the Chinese talk about their, you know, political system, they talk, they, they say this is uniquely Chinese. Uh, second, uh, I agree that uh, great power carries great responsibilities, uh, and uh, uh, China has a lot to learn. Uh, to uh, be a, 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 a rising, <laughs> to the requirement, rising expectations and rising responsibilities, uh, expectations of taking up responsibilities are the part of the international community. Uh, 
I mean, uh, China is inexperienced, uh, and ill-prepared uh, uh, for its role at the moment. Uh, it has risen too fast for it to get fully prepared. But uh, I think uh, uh, China will uh, learn, uh, and Chinese are wise enough to learn, and also uh, take, uh, wise enough to take advantage of the knowledge and experience of other countries. Uh, in uh, trying to uh, act uh, to to take up its own share of responsibilities as its power rises, it has already taken up a lot of responsibilities, and I think, uh, given time, uh, Chinese uh, government, uh, China, China will, will learn to uh, take up more in a more wisely way. Jan Schwitzer, well, I. I I heard that actually the question related related to the um, the export model, no matter the political the model of the system or the model of the economic development or even the model of the foreign policy, and I think this idea is uh, really really uh, uh, dangerous. And uh, <clears throat> if China can be uh, different from the U.S. Uh, when China becomes a superpower, and China should be very very different in this uh, aspect. And um, if you want to export, especially if any uh, superpower want to export its uh, uh, political uh, uh, model or the pol uh, political system, it will always cause resistance from the other countries and which possibly uh, uh, bring about a war. That's really what we see after the, uh, uh, the, 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 the end of the Cold War. And so now I think this is really what China should learn from history. Actually, like uh, Professor Jia said, the Chinese government consistently and said that uh, now we do not want to copy America's model for China because we have to develop our own model to, uh, uh, for uh, the speciality of the Chinese uh, uh, China. So the same, I think this theory should apply to all the countries and uh, uh, for the world. And even China successfully and become a superpower, I don't think any other countries should and. The, uh, uh, follow China, China's model, and uh, they may uh, they may borrow some ideas or the get some uh, experience from China, but def definitely they cannot copy. The reason is that anyone to copy this model are doomed to fail, and because I don't think any other countries have the same population and can have the Communist Party as a leading party for their country, have the same constitution for us, and have the uh, the Chinese. Uh, 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 tiger mother education type. So from my understanding, every country is so different. So China can make, uh, uh, make a progress based on its own model. It doesn't mean the others uh, will achieve the uh, success and uh, uh, by following this model. Professor Wang. Uh, speaking about China model, many years ago when people talk about Beijing consensus, I made a comment is that is, if you really want to learn from China's model, establish your own, own Communist Party, which penetrates deeply into any, every corner of society, every level of government. But I don't think ever, any country can learn from that. One, one comment on soft power. Uh, the most popular movie in China today, I don't know whether you know that or not, is Zootopia. Zootopia, <coughs> or in Chinese, 
疯狂动物动物世界或疯狂动物 something. I I watched that movie and I I was very happy with that. But then there is a leading uh, newspaper in China today saying, well, this is a U.S. Uh, political uh, Conspiracy. U.S. <laughs> U.S. conspiracy to undermine the leadership of China because you know, uh, 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 you know the, 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 the animals there represent some some kind of political force. Oh, Zootopia. My point here is that soft power. That is U.S. false power. I con confess. But I don't think that is a U.S. conspiracy because conspiracy comes from the government or from leading the leadership, uh, and uh, and uh, 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 Hollywood doesn't have too many conspiracies <laughs> to influence <coughs> politics. But my really point, real point is that uh, soft power is generated by society, not by government. Uh, and if, if the government is too, too interested in promoting the, uh, the, uh, the soft power of China, give more voice to the population at large, give more population, give more, more rights to, to the own people and, and so on, and that will generate more soft power. As Yan Xiaotong just mentioned, you, know, you, you have the examples to show that soft power is generated by the people rather than by, by the government. Thank you. Okay, well, if you need to, to be uh, free for that. Uh, I wanted to thank uh, Thomas and Justin and Colin uh, for, uh, for their comments. Um, I wanted to uh, thank sincerely uh, Professors uh, Wang and uh, Tia and Ian, and I'd like to uh, offer each of you a small gift. And please, ladies and gentlemen, can you express your